Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Sister Citizen by Melissa V. Harris Perry. And we are continuing with chapter two, which is entitled Myth. We are on page 58. We should finish this chapter with this with this reading here. According to historian Darlene Clark Hine, Black women created a culture of dissemblance to protect their inner selves from this oppressive sexual myth and their resulting vulnerability. To dissemble is to conceal one's true self. 19th century Black poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar hinted that much of Black life in America was dissemblance when he wrote, quote, We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, end quote. Dunbar understood that in the context of segregation, black people often had to conceal their thoughts and emotions to protect themselves from systems that demanded their happy acquiescence to inequality. Hines' theory of black women's culture of dissemblance builds on Dunbar's insight and explains the specific ways that gender vulnerability led black women to hide their authentic selves. For decades following the end of Southern slavery, more than three-fourths of African-American women worked primarily as domestic workers. Their labor put them in proximity and subordinate status to white men, many of whom held deeply ingrained sexual beliefs about black women. Further, their race and gender denied them full protection of the law. These realities meant that black women were particularly vulnerable to sexual assault. Faced with these circumstances, Many black women sought refuge by donning a mask of asexuality. They learned to adopt a false identity that provided them some semblance of protection of the self, if not necessarily of their bodies, in their hostile and sexually predatory environment. Hines' work shows that by, Hines work shows that by divulging little about their personal lives, revealing next to nothing about their own interests, triumphs, or defeats, and shielding their authentic personalities behind a performance of racial and gender tropes, black women crafted a kind of psychic safe space beyond the surveillance of the white families for whom they worked. As Hine writes, quote, Because of the interplay of racial animosity, class tensions, gender role differentiation, and regional economic variations, black women, as a rule, developed and adhered to a cult of secrecy, a culture of dissemblance, to protect the sanctity of inner aspects of their lives. The dynamics of dissemblance involve creating the appearance of disclosure or openness about themselves and their feelings while actually remaining an enigma. Only with secrecy, thus achieving a self-imposed invisibility, could ordinary black women accrue the psychic space and harness the resources needed to hold their own in the often one-sided and mismatched resistance struggle. End quote. The act of dissemblance was a tactic to find the upright in the crooked room that, as Hines put it, quote, enabled the creation of positive alternative images of their sexual selves and facilitated black women's mental and physical survival in a hostile world. End quote. In this sense, Black women's secret realities protected them physically and socially from a system of labor, exploitation, and political powerlessness.
The realities of black women's sexual vulnerability in light of the assumption of their sexual promiscuity prompted the psychic and tactical need to hide their real selves behind a facade of openness. Although born from the necessities of domestic labor and embraced by many, the culture of dissemblance took on a specific class-defined form for middle-class African-American women during the first half of the 20th century. Women's clubs became a popular tool of social and political organizing for women in the years following the Civil War. Among white women, these clubs laid the foundation for suffrages activities, progressivism, and temperance movements in the early 20th century. Barred from participation in white women's organizations, African-American women developed their own robust movement of social uplift through a number of loosely affiliated national organizations focused on racial equality, justice, and moral hygiene. The National Association of Colored Women, NACW, founded in 1896, became the largest and most enduring organization of this movement. Operating under the motto, quote, lifting as we climb, end quote, the 20th century black women's club movement was, in part, an organized political attempt to counter the myths of sexual licentiousness. I can't, I just figured, I just got the pronunciation of this word and I'm, I'm still struggling. Licentiousness, licentiousness. Okay. Let's try to read that again. Operating under the motto, quote, lifting as we climb, end quote, the 20th century black women's club movement was, in part, an organized political attempt to counter the myths of sexual licentiousness with counterexamples of modesty and respectability. Active from the 1880s through the 1930s, women's clubs made up the largest racial movement of the 20th century, eclipsing even Garveyism and the modern civil rights movement. Club women's work helped, back, helped black communities survive economically and politically while offering an alternative image of black women as chaste and temperate. It resisted the painful sexual assumptions at the heart of black women's lived experience, combining the work of community uplift with strategies of promoting religious fidelity, personal moderation, and social respectability. Quote, at the core of essentially every activity of NACW's members was a concern with creating positive images of black women's sexuality. End quote. These stereotypes meant that normal expressions of human sensuality, such as wearing visible makeup or revealing clothing, dating openly, and engaging publicly in romantic physical affection could be read as confirming evidence of black women's lewdness. In an effort to resist these stereotypes, black women in public leadership positions buried normal, innocuous expressions of sexuality behind an image of either pristine asexuality or narrowly defined, respectable, married identity. They aggressively advanced the social agenda that encouraged other black women to follow their example. Having been cast as disreputable, these black women leaders sought to establish their respectability and through that act to lay claim to fair and equal treatment in public life. This, quote, politics of respectability, end quote, enacted through a specific culture of dissemblance, is a response to the myth of hypersexuality. 
Black women who served as school teachers, nurses, church mothers, civic leaders, and the like, hope that their public displays of strict sexual respectability would counter existing prejudices and help control the terms by which they would be seen. Okay, let's have a reflection there. So upon reflection, what stands out is that we read about women's clubs, the women's clubs move, club movement in women racing class. There was a whole chapter that was on it, and it was referenced throughout the book at different points in time. We learned about the importance and the significance of it, how it was uh, a, an instrument for a tool for empowerment of black women, of black women fighting against stereotypes, of fighting against stigma, of black women becoming more politicized. And so when we, as we hear about these things and read about these things again, a sister citizen, that sort of, it sort of caused back some of those thoughts to me. And when we see some of the intentions that were around the women's club movement, I think that's important to know as well, this portion here where Melissa V. Harris Perry writes, Active from the 1880s through the 1930s, women's clubs made up the largest racial movement of the 20th century, eclipsing even Garveyism and the modern civil rights movement. And so it's important to know that when we begin to talk about uh, black people, black liberation, when we begin to talk, when you talk about feminism, is that black women's, the black women's club movement is something that engaged a high number of black women, which means it engaged a high number of the black community. And so steps that were taken forward or progress that was made in different aspects in this time period, there has to be a, a, a attribution to the women's clubs club movement. And so the more we understand the different things and the different dynamics that were existing in periods of time that helped to progress certain social issues I think it can be useful towards using some of those tactics or using some of those ideologies or beliefs uh, in the current situations we're in to try to make progress. Hope that makes sense. Let's see where we at. Okay, sorry about that, y'all. I'm just trying to find my spot again. Find our spot again. Where are we? Okay. If a claim to full citizenship rests on the assertion of a narrowly defined, sexually repressive respectability, then black women must adhere to a rigidly controlled public performance of themselves. Such rigidity can leave little room for complicated realities. Black women's real lives include sexual desire, some include children born outside of marriage. Some include loving partnerships not sanctioned by social norms. For those women, the politics of respectability required even greater dissemblance. It forced them to wear a mask. It also meant that many middle-class proponents of respectability were willing to criticize publicly, silence actively, or simply ignore those black women who did not fit its narrow definition of acceptable feminine behavior. Respectability politics implied that women's ability to work on behalf of black communities and to demand fair, just treatment from the state rested on their sterling moral character. Therefore, 
It was important to present an untarnished self to the public at all times, regardless of the difficult, messy human realities women experience. Although this form of dissembling created some emotional space for black women, the politics of respectability failed in important ways. Black women tried to live with dignity and modesty, control their fertility, and work to form lasting, loving relationships with men and with other women. But these efforts occurred in the context of profound degradation of black women's characters and real threats to their physical safety. Uh, I think one of the things that I, I think is important to point out is that as we read about these issues that are unique to black women, there are also going to be proponents that relate to black people as a whole because anything that relates uniquely to black women relates to black people as a whole. There will be some concepts that relate to women as a whole because anything that relates to black women uh, uniquely also has the possibility of relating to women as a whole. And I say that to say that the politics of respectability is something that are, is a, a method that has been proven through decades of people actively engaging in the politics of respectability, that it does not work, that trying to be a, as was pointed here, as was pointed out here, dissembling and trying to be basically a perfect version of whatever community you are from or the perfect individual from the community that you're from, where you don't do things that may feed into stereotypes or feed into tropes, that that does not do anything to make people not see you in a stereotypical fashion or to make people not try to cast you in tropes or to make people any less racist or any less prejudiced. Uh, and that's something, and, and even the concept of respectability politics is in its, in its essence an individualistic ideology because it, it puts the onus on the, and also is, at its essence it's an individualistic ideology. Because it requires that each person uh, have to do something individually. Uh, I want to use a different word besides individually. But each person has to individually do some type of work on themselves to make themselves more deserving of justice or more deserving of freedom or more deserving of equal equality and equity. Uh, and also it does, what it does is it puts the onus on the person who is being victim, victimized, the person who's being oppressed to being exploited, to be the bigger person and to rise above that exploitation and rise above that oppression. Because what is important to understand is that these stereotypes and these stigmas and these, uh, prejudices and these tropes don't exist without oppression and exploitation and, uh, inequalities that they exist to maintain the inequalities and as an excuse for and a justification for uh, the oppression and the exploitation. And so what has to be just as important as it may be to do the job of as a community internally investigating why some of these tropes exist and why we may perpetuate certain negative stereotypes in certain ways. It is even more important to change the climate in which our communities exist to give us the possibility to break free from these stereotypes, to break free from these prejudices. Uh, again, I hope that that makes sense. And that's a highlighting that that I haven't been doing a lot of highlighting in this passage that we read here, but 
I believe that that paragraph is a highlighting section. The culture of dissemblance may have also left black women's politics without the flexibility to respond to complicated contemporary political realities that evoke the ideas of hypersexuality. Thus, as in the case of the alleged Kelly video, when a teenage girl is filmed in sexual intercourse with an adult man, black women are as likely to denounce her for promiscuity as to hold him accountable for criminal misconduct. Despite their own history of sexual vulnerability in the workplace, black women show little solidarity with Anita Hill's tale of sexual harassment because her testimony violated the code of dissemblance and invited sexualized scrutiny of black women. Many black women believe that when Desiree Washington made the disreputable choice to accompany Mike Tyson to his hotel room, she terminated her right to say no. The pervasive and long-standing culture of sexual dissemblance means that black women have not become adept at addressing these public moments of interracial sexual anxiety. This point is made forcefully by Evelyn Hammonds in her piece, Cord, in her piece, quote, Toward a Genealogy of Black Female Sexuality, the Problematic of Silence, end quote in which she traces the historical, sexual, and labor exploitations of black women's bodies. Far too many black women reformers, authors, and academics, she argues, have faced these degrading images of black womanhood with relative silence about sexuality. This silence has done little to deconstruct degrading images of black womanhood and has had deleterious material consequences for racial political agendas. For example, Hammond suggests that mainstream black women writers and activists inadequately address the explosion of HIV AIDS among African-American women, in part because HIV positive status is associated in the popular imagination with uncontrolled sexuality. Through dissemblance, these middle class activist African-American women sought to respond to and defend against the sexualized myths to frame themselves as, quote, good women, end quote and therefore gain access to the privileges of womanhood. But the privileges of white women were not based on an assumption of equality. They resulted instead from an ideology that saw white women as weak, pure, and needing male protection. The politics of respectability too often conform to similarly dichotomous thinking about what is bad and good in women. Reactions against the myth of promiscuity meant that these same black women often found it difficult to make claims on the state and society as full citizens. Instead, they found themselves battling to share the prison of second-class citizenship with white women. Okay. And all right, I'm going to. Okay, I want to say this. Also, within here, we hear more. We we've read more about Anita Hill, Anita, which Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas Thomas's interaction, or the events surrounding Clarence Thomas being selected to the Supreme Court, and then the uh, Anita Hill scandal that followed it, or that happened in conjunction with it was something that we read about in the book Race Matters by Cornell West. It was something that I talked about, I had heard about before, but that was the most comprehensive I had read about it in the chapter that was in Race Matters. We've seen it be brought up here again. I think we might have, it might have been touched on in Angela Davis's book, maybe, possibly. 
but it's been referenced multiple times within here. And I think that it is, again, there are these historical moments that have very strong political implications and cultural implications. And I believe that they are, they, they need to be dissected and studied. And I think that that is one of those moments. And so I just wanted to reference the fact that, again, we see the cohesion within these pieces of literature that we're reading. Uh, okay. Social norms surrounding gender have changed dramatically since the beginning of the 20th century. Advances in birth control make it possible for women to control fertility while remaining sexually active. Changes in the nation's labor needs required middle-class women to work and increase their engagement in the public sphere. Second-wave feminism opened educational opportunities, liberalized divorce laws, and equalized pay so that women were capable of greater personal and financial autonomy. Along with these political and social changes came dramatically different sexual possibilities for women. Black women coming of age in the latter half of the 20th century were socialized in this new post-Victorian social ethic, and many chose to drop the mask of dissemblance. Like their white counterparts, African-American women tested the boundaries of this autonomous expression of human sexuality. They used birth control, shortened their skirts, and produced erotic cultural products. Like the blues singers of an earlier generation, many expressed rebellious sexual ethics through music. One important space for young black women to express new sexual, sexual ethics was in the burgeoning urban culture of hip-hop. In the 1980s, androgynous, androgynous and husky-voiced MC Light pioneered women's hip-hop bravado. Queen Latifah's early persona rested on Afrocentric reclamation of womanhood. And Salt and Pepper, and Salt and Pepper unabashedly explored heterosexual female sexual pleasure and empowerment. As 1990s hip-hop culture turned toward exaltation of the gangster, black women continued openly to occupy new sexual terrain. For example, Jada Pinkett, Vivica A. Fox, Kimberly Elise, and Queen Latifah teamed up in 1996 for the black female outlaw film, Set It Off. Sexuality was boldly central in the film. Elise plays a single parent, Pinkett a sexually empowered single woman, and Latifah a butch lesbian. Hip-hop was never a progressive, bias-free space for black women's sexual liberation, and the examples I have offered here are troubling and limited. But early hip-hop seemed to hold the promise of a modern blues aesthetic, one that would respond to black women speaking about their own complicated realities of sexual desire, action, autonomy, coercion, ecstasy, and abuse. But as hip-hop aged, the space for black women's voices narrowed. Overtly sexualized but strikingly one-dimensional artists like Little Kim and Foxy Brown captured some attention in the late 1990s. And by 2011, Nicki Minaj was the undisputed queen of sexy female hip-hop MCs. But even Kim, Brown, and Minaj are exceptions in this male-dominated industry. As hip-hop grew into a multi-billion dollar corporate-owned entertainment industry, talented B-girls, breakers, and MCs became increasingly scarce. Instead of offering a forum for sisters to voice their own truths, hip-hop made black women into silent, scantily clad figures who writhed willingly behind male artists. These video vixens submit to having beer poured on their heads, engaging with multiple sexual partners, and being called, quote, bitch, end quote, and, quote, hoe, end quote. 
Literary scholar Nagana Lewis writes, quote, Particularly in hip-hop, the discursive abuse of black women registers perhaps more pervasively now than at any other point in the history of American culture. The liberating sexual revolution of late 20th century America had one set of implications for white women and a very different one for black girls and women because it occurred within a long history of understanding black women as unethically sexualized. Hip-hop videos put the Venus hot and tots exaggerated sexual organs back on display for the voyeuristic pleasure of the paying public. Though separated from her by many decades, corporate-controlled hip-hop music and culture created a new set of tilted images portraying black women as lusty, available, and willing partners. Hip-hop is not the sole or most problematic cultural force promoting hypersexualized images of women. The sexual objectification of girls and women of all races is standard fare in contemporary American popular culture and marketing. It is profitable for both Madison Avenue and Hollywood. For white women, the emergence of sexualized images reads as a cultural backlash against their expanding political, social, and economic opportunities. MTV's 16 and Pregnant and the Real Housewives series are not accurate portrayals of white women's lived experiences, and evidence shows that media-based sexual objectification has measurable, deleterious effects on girls and women. But the implications of sexual images for black American women are different. Although sexism affects all women, black women's relative economic and political weakness makes them more vulnerable to state intervention. The sexualized myths of black women have conspired to narrow the political and social world for sisters. Not only is the overt sexualization of black women through hip hop troubling for the sisters themselves, it also has meaningful political consequences. Hip hop has become the dominant form of youth culture in the United States. But according to political scientist Kathy Cohen, its reliance on open and often gratuitous display of black sexuality has also initiated moral panic and public discourse. Hip hop's overt sexual themes and images have been blamed for such social problems as crime, academic underperformance, teen pregnancy, welfare dependency, and drug abuse. Cohen argues that race leaders, media voices, and policymakers eschew more complicated analysis of the structural inequalities of inadequate housing, poor nutrition, unequal schools, limited employment opportunities, and racially biased policing as cause for these social ills in favor of a public discourse that blames scantily clad young women for initiating the downfall of their own communities. Primed by centuries of assuming that black women are sexually lewd, this moral panic takes hold easily and directs the terms of public conversations about how to address inequality. Instead of changing structures, too many solutions in the public sphere involve enforced limitations on black women's sexuality. For example, welfare policy is an intimately linked in the American imagination with black women's sexuality. Political scientist Martin Gillen shows that white American opposition to welfare results from whites' fixed beliefs that the system supports unworthy black people who lack a suitable work ethic. Central to this opposition is a belief that black women do not appropriately control their fertility, that they have sex with multiple partners, producing children who must be cared for through tax-supported social welfare programs. Feminist theorist Ange Marie Hancock has shown that welfare policy is shrouded in the politics of disgust, 
resulting from racialized and gender stereotypes of black women. The depiction of black women as sexually insatiable breeders suits a slave-holding society that profits from black women's fertility. But for a shrieking postmodern state, black women's assumed lasciviousness and rampant reproduction are threatening. Therefore, throughout the 20th century, the state employed involuntary sterilization, pressure to submit to long-term birth control, and restriction of state benefits for large families as a way to control black women's reproduction. The myth of a plantation Jezebel can be deployed to limit today's welfare-dependent mother. It is not just a matter of distorted perceptions. These misrecognitions can be used to punish African-American women through policy. Okay. All right, we're almost done with this section. We're going to keep on reading this last paragraph and a half, and then we'll have a reflection and end this episode. Which is not to deny that black women debate among themselves about the extent to which unwed motherhood is a serious problem. In a Chicago focus group, several over 40 women discussed whether black teenagers needed the state to step in and control their irresponsible sexuality. They had a heated argument about whether teenagers who have more than one child should be forced to submit to a long-term birth control shot. Francine, quote, well, I don't need to say the quote. So this is a conversation that happens between two people right here, so, or between four people. These are all different statements. Francine, I am very opposed to that. It is bad enough that we are literally standing on the street corner handing out condoms to our teenagers, but this is crazy. A law that requires long-term birth control shots? Come on, what are we saying here? Margaret, and who are the teenage girls having the most babies? That is like genocide almost. This isn't China. Even though you wish they wouldn't be mothers until they've lived life, but still, who is going to be giving these shots? Iris, I have to disagree. I strongly support it. I'm sick of these babies having babies just because they got nothing better to do. Just give them all a shot. Francine, what are you talking about? I got little nieces. I don't want them getting that shot. The conversation was complicated and emotional. Women often talked over one another. I was struck by the passion with which Margaret and Francine argued against stereotyping black teenagers, even those with multiple children, as oversexed. Iris, in contrast, insisted that black youth sexuality is pathological and needs to be controlled by public policy. It may seem a stretch to point to antebellum notions of black women's lasciviousness as a source of contemporary emotional and political meaning for black women. But this early characterization of black women has infiltrated the nation's understanding of black women's character in ways that continue to resonate in America's cultural, social, and political fabric. The myth also resonates in the hearts and minds of black women. And that ends the, that section of the chapter myth, which was entitled The Myth of Promiscuity. And then we're going to move on to the myth of Mammy next. But that will be in the following episode. I will do that. We're a little bit over 30 minutes here, but I, I want to... We read a lot in that last section. Uh, what stands out to me is... Well, this is what I'll say. I'll say that right now, I think that as far as starting with hip hop, I think that there is a more of a wide range of women 
hip hop artists who are making mu not making music, but are having the opportunity to have their music heard by more people and have their music featured as more part of the culture and and seen more as central and staple to staples of the culture. Uh, and so I think that that's something that is being that's changing as we sit here and speak today. But I think that even within that change, that because like was pointed out in here, corporate America has essentially bought the portions of the hip hop culture, portions of the music culture. There are certain stereotypes that these companies will always perpetuate. I think that's one of the dangers of us as a culture, as a community, not owning our culture. And when you sell off pieces of your culture is that now other people who, uh, you know, one person, a person who comes from a certain neighborhood telling a certain story, a woman who has lived a certain life telling a certain story that's authentic rings very different than somebody who is sitting in an office and is orchestrating a story for somebody or somebody who's sitting in the office and is wanting somebody to make music that sounds like a certain story. Well, the one, the, the opposite, the latter thing is exploitative. The person in the corporate office is exploitative. And uh, the person who is, who has actually lived these experiences, who is uh, trying to tell their story, tell their truth, that that is empowering. And I think that there is a very thin line between uh, empowerment and exploitation. And we see it happening in, in the hip hop culture today and uh, the experiences of black women from uh, video vixens, from the content of music that is made and the way that black women are talked about and spoke about in within the music, within the lyrics, the uh the ramifications of that are something that I don't think is quite dressed, quite addressed enough for my, in my generation. And I think that's something that we have to do a better job of now that we have especially more mediums to be able to have these deeper conversations, that there is a deeper conversation to be had about the thin line between the exploitation of black women in uh, hip hop culture and the empowerment of black women in hip hop culture. All right, and so we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up here, and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily as we continue reading Sister Citizen by Melissa V. Harris-Perry. Uh, share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and remember we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. <laughs>